Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Confidence in a coming economic recovery is growing thanks to vaccine rollouts and the promise of further stimulus. So why have markets been so jittery? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long and coming up on today's show, how poor countries trying to renegotiate their debt burdens are caught in a minefield of lenders' competing priorities and egos. Basically, everyone is sitting at the table looking over their shoulders and asking, is someone else getting a better deal than I am? And we take a lesson from a former hostage negotiator in the secrets of successful listening. You need to understand what their motives are. You've got to understand facts. You only ever do that by listening to them. You'll never do that by talking at them. But first, the markets. Last week, inflation fears led to a sharp sell-off in American Treasury bonds, with the stock market following suit. This week, the stock market got off to a remarkably breezy start, with the S&P 500 index on March the 1st recording its biggest one-day gain since June 2020. But by this morning, March the 2nd, the mood was already more cautious. Nervousness lingers. It was pretty volatile last week in the bond market. The week is still fairly young, of course, Simon. So. <laughs> John O'Sullivan is The Economist's markets columnist, also known as Buttonwood. You have to go back a little bit to get the context. So bond yields in America and in sympathy pretty much everywhere else have been rising for most of the last year. And that upward movement really accelerated in January and February. And then last week, it sort of found another gear when the benchmark 10-year Treasury yield spiked up above 1.6%. You need a little bit of context here. When Treasury yields fell to 1.6% in the summer of 2016, that was a record low. So it's not that the level that they've got to is particularly scary. It was the pace at which things were rising, you know, 20, 25 basis points on some yields in the space of a day. So it looked like what had been a fairly normal rebuilding of, of bond yields as people get more confident about an economic recovery was running away rather quickly. That had a knock-on effect for the stock market, which had a big one-day fall last Thursday. There was a particularly big fall in the the tech-heavy Nasdaq index because tech stocks in particular are very sensitive to what happens in, in the bond market. But as you say, John, you'd expect bond yields to rise and bond prices to fall as people get more optimistic about the pace of economic recovery. Why was it all so jittery? Since the beginning of the year, We've had sort of steady upward revisions to GDP growth for this year and even for this current quarter. So the numbers have just been coming in stronger than people had expected. That's the first thing. The second thing is expectations about another 
fiscal package from America. I think at the beginning of the year, people thought there would be a package, but maybe if Congress went back down the bipartisan route, it would be smaller. Now that that bipartisanship seems to be pretty much dead, it looks like it's going to be a bigger package. So people were getting much more confident about the outlook for growth. And consequently, they were worried about the outlook for inflation too. In the bond market, there was a, a rethink about how quickly the Federal Reserve would have to start raising interest rates. The idea that they would do so got pulled forward several months to early 2023. And this was happening just on a day when the Treasury had several new bond issues under auction, and those auctions went particularly badly. And that in itself spooked the bond market even more, so there was a sell-off. The volatility in the bond market meant that liquidity in the market dried up somewhat, so that made the prices move even more. And then suddenly you've got a very, very sharp movement in the space of one trading day. And that is the thing that really upset the stock market. So are these fears about inflation justified? At this point, in which the global economy is still far from reopening, inflation is still at 1.5% on the Fed's measure. So it's a little bit too early to be sure, but the case for higher inflation has seemed stronger than it has done for years. The fear, and it's not an unreasonable one, is that you're going to be pushing a lot of demand into an economy that can't respond quickly in terms of supply, you'll get bottlenecks and and inflation will go up. I think the bigger question is whether that can be sustained. And I think if you go back to the 70s, which is what some people are talking about, this is fears of the 1970s style inflation, you had widespread indexation, you had unionization. So prices fed into wages, fed into prices in a fairly predictable way. Those mechanisms aren't there. So I think the fear is getting ahead of itself, but it's not an entirely unfounded fear. And how do these fears translate into, well, firstly, falling bond prices and then falling stock markets? Uh, Well, inflation is bad for bonds. At 1.6% on the 10-year Treasury last Thursday, it's lower now, of course. Should inflation be up 2%, you're already losing money in in real terms. So inflation is natural to fear inflation in the bond market. In the stock market, it's, it's the concern about the Federal Reserve and other central banks having to respond to contain that inflation. So long-term interest rates would then have to to rise in a sustainable way. And we've already got quite expensive uh, stock markets, particularly in America. And a lot of that dearness, high prices relative to underlying earnings, is justified by the idea that we're going to have low interest rates for a very long time. So anything that upsets that particular assumption makes the stock market very jittery. But on on Monday, at least, traders seem after the weekend to have decided, oh, well, we were too worried, nothing much to be bothered about. What what explains that? Well, I think I'd go back to what I said earlier, which is that there's a general feeling that it had gone too far. There were lots of sort of so-called technical factors, weird interrelation between volatility and liquidity that made the rise in yields particularly marked on Thursday. So that's one thing, which is, well, can we really make up our minds about medium-term inflation before we've even seen short-term inflation? The second thing is that the message has been from Federal Reserve officials pretty consistently. They're not even thinking about thinking about cutting back on bond purchases, never mind raising interest rates. And then at the beginning of this week, the Reserve Bank of Australia, Australia's central bank, actually intervened in the bond market, said it was going to make more purchases of long-term bonds than it had previously said it would do. And I think that was also a reminder that if things go too far in the bond market in a way that might threaten the recovery, then central banks, including the Federal Reserve, but also the European Central Bank, have the firepower to cap 
bond yields should they choose to do so. So I think that was also a factor. And then finally, even though 1.6% five years ago was a record low, 1.6% on a 10-year yield is actually quite attractive if you're a, a Japanese or European investor. So I think there are people that were prepared to buy bonds at these, at these yields. So what looked like runaway momentum in the bond market was actually sort of attenuated by, I think, several of these factors. A lot of the circumstances you described there, John, seem to be ones that are unlikely to change anytime soon. So was last week just a blip or or was it an indication of more and perhaps worse to come? It was both. (laughs) I mean, it, it was a blip in the sense that it was quite a large movement in one day. But I think the sort of mood and anxiety that essentially prompted it is unlikely to go away. Inflation is, is the big bogeyman of, of markets. You know, if we have higher medium term inflation, that kind of upends the whole constellation of asset prices that we've got used to, which is very high stock prices, very low bond yields. So it turns everything upside down if we get higher inflation. Everyone's very unsure, I think, or well, they should be unsure about the inflation outlook because we don't have brilliant models of, of inflation. It's actually a very noisy process. So if you put it together, the anxiety plus the reopening and the uncertainty about the power of that, it seems to me that these sorts of scares are going to recur. Thursday was a big one, but the idea that that was just a one-off, I think you'd be a bit too sanguine if you thought that. It's going to be very difficult for the Federal Reserve to guide expectations in a perfect way. So I think there will be more episodes like this before the year is out. John O'Sullivan, Buttonwood. Thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. For full access to all the Economist analysis of what's moving markets around the world, why not subscribe? There's a special rate for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the notes for this episode. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On the morning of November the 13th, Inonge Wiener, the vice president of Zambia, stood before parliament. This country is not ready to default. And I can assure the honourable member that Zambia will not default. Hours later, surprise, surprise, Zambia missed the deadline to pay interest and did default on $3 billion worth of euro bonds. The pandemic has left some of the world's poorest countries struggling to repay their debt. In 2020, Argentina, Belize, Ecuador, Lebanon and Suriname all, like Zambia, defaulted. More will run out of money in the months ahead. For some emerging markets, like Zambia, a debt crisis is the story of a chaotic and corrupt government that borrowed carelessly. For others, the pandemic hit revenues from commodities while health and welfare costs soared. But there are also problems on the side of the creditors. First and foremost, the immediate cause for debt trouble is the fact that a country's got itself into a position where it's got unsustainable debt. Avantika Chilkoti is our international correspondent and has been reporting from Lusaka. 
But, you know, if you're going to look at the reasons why negotiations can drag on, why they get knotty, you have to consider the sort of tangled network of feuds, of obligations, of grudges that tie together all the different creditors that that are involved. You know, you have multilaterals and bilateral lenders which have their own agendas. Then you've got commercial lenders and bondholders with their agendas. And basically, everyone is sitting at the table, looking over their shoulders and asking, is someone else getting a better deal than I am? But in the past, there have been successful debt renegotiations. I suppose the one that, that sticks in the mind is the one around the, the turn of the millennium, the, the Jubilee movement, it was called, wasn't it? Multinational debt forgiveness for a lot of countries. Why, why did they manage to do that? Yep, so there was two big initiatives at that time. There was the heavily indebted poor country initiative and there was the multilateral debt relief initiative, which from the sort of mid-90s till now have saved 37 of the world's poorest countries, over $100 billion altogether. And that is, you know, a huge amount of money. But the situation then and now is totally different. Uh, For one, you know, at that time, there were far fewer creditors involved. You could actually get everyone around a table. You know, you were talking the IMF, you were talking a few rich country governments that were working together as the Paris Club. And, you know, some big commercial banks, everyone sort of knew each other. That's no longer the case. Um, The second big thing was, at that time, there was a huge amount of popular support for debt relief. There was the significance of the turn of the millennium, a chance for a clean slate, and everyone from the rock star Bono to the American televangelist Pat Robinson was really pushing the global community to get together and help poor countries. So how have things got more complicated since? The first thing is the makeup of creditors. Um, There's two big new groups that are very important and that have changed the creditor landscape. Firstly, you've got a group of bilateral lenders. You've got China, Saudi Arabia, these countries that have really begun lending to the poor world in the last sort of, you know, 10, 20 years. On the other hand, you've also got commercial lenders. You've got bondholders now. There's a lot of poor countries that have been able to go to international capital markets recently that couldn't before, say, the mid-1990s. As a result, you know, the makeup of emerging market debt is very different. The portion of public external debt that the average emerging market owes to a multilateral institution has dropped. It was around 43% in 2008 and 34% in 2019, according to some World Bank data. And at the same time, the share that's due to commercial lenders has actually jumped from 29% to 45%. So just the debt that we're talking about is totally different in its composition. Let's start with China. The way its lending has grown up so quickly has provoked some accusations of what's called debt trap diplomacy, hasn't it? I mean, for example, we we heard this from former Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence. Today, that country is offering hundreds of billions of dollars in infrastructure loans to governments from Asia to Africa to Europe and even Latin America. Yet the terms of those loans are opaque at best. And the benefits invariably flow overwhelmingly to Beijing. Clearly, the Chinese leadership vehemently disagrees with the way its its lending is characterised. But how does the tension affect renegotiation? So the one thing that's definitely true is that the size of Chinese lending has really ballooned since that last debt crisis. 
Of course, you know, just the sentiment around it, suspicion isn't good. But putting that aside, there are actual characteristics of Chinese lending that do complicate talks. You know, firstly, when we talk about Chinese lending, this isn't one big player. There are lots of different players. There are state-owned enterprises. There are privately owned banks. There are policy banks. And they all have different agendas in the talks.、Um, secondly, it is true that Chinese lending comes with some transparency concerns. The first thing you do in any restructuring is you try to tot up exactly what a country owes, who it owes it to. But there are sometimes in Chinese、um, loan agreements confidentiality clauses. In Zambia's case, for example, a lot of the bondholders will say the reason that they don't want to provide relief is that they're scared that their funds are going to just be used to pay off a Chinese lender. And are the Chinese lenders themselves likely to come to the table for for new debt talks, for for multilateral talks, for example? Yep. So Chinese lending is definitely evolving. You know, they're kind of adjusting themselves to being a very big player now, and there's some good signs. So, for example, the fact that China has joined the G20 in a couple of initiatives last year to suspend sort of、uh, debt payments short term to sort of help poor countries. Uh, in a more、uh, comprehensive way, long term, that's definitely a good thing. More recently, we've seen some policy banks announce that they've deferred payments for, for example, Zambia and Ecuador. But you know, in all these cases, it's all quite limited. So, for example, where they have deferred some payments, we don't always know the size of the debt. Or exactly how big a concession has been offered. So some of that transparency question remains. The second group of creditors you mentioned was the the, the commercial lenders, bondholders, banks, and so on. Their interests are clearly very different.、Uh, how, how do they fit in, and what's their relationship like with the big traditional players, the IMF and, and national lenders? Yeah, I sort of see this as Washington versus Wall Street. Sometimes bondholders are in this for profit. They have fiduciary duties to their end investors, and they'll sort of ask, you know, I don't have a responsibility to a poor government, do I? You know, when it comes to making sure that this debt is sustainable and it's used correctly, lots of fund managers will admit that they don't even read the prospectuses that are published ahead of a big fundraising that lay out how a government intends to use its money, and and there's just very different goals involved. This is a new type of lending that a lot of these poor countries haven't had access to before, and、um, that's really sort of changing this landscape. Okay, Avantika. Suppose you're appointed to advise an emerging market that needs to restructure its debt now, in the middle of a pandemic. How do you tell it to go about it? So this really depends on which emerging market it is. You know how strategically important it is in geopolitics, the exact makeup of its debt.、Uh, the one thing I would start with is just thinking about not just getting all of the creditors on side, but getting them on side in the right order. There's also a big question about how and when you get the IMF involved. You know, all creditors feel much more comfortable negotiating once the fund is involved. The fund brings data, it brings accountability, it has this sort of honest broker function. So, for example, last year Ecuador managed to sort of strike an agreement with its bondholders pretty quickly, whilst Zambia's negotiations are sort of. Rambling on, you know, Ecuador had a good relationship with the fund, and Zambia didn't. You know, right now in the middle of a pandemic, you also have to remember all of this is more complicated. Imagine all of this bargaining, all of these personal relationships, and all of this wrangling, and it's happening over Zoom. 
Creditors are just used to meeting one another in person. They want to read body language. They want to break off for sort of chats with allies. And navigating these personal relationships is very difficult right now. Avanda Kachokoti, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Simon. And finally, whether it's negotiating sovereign debt relief or a modest salary increase, there's one underrated skill that will come in handy, listening. It sounds so simple, but as generations of managers have found, listening is a deceptively difficult and powerful skill to master. Studies by the Harvard Business Review show that employees who feel listened to are measurably less anxious, better able to respond to critical feedback, and more likely to cooperate, even with those they disagree with. But the sudden switch to remote working for many has disrupted even the most collaborative of teams. Most business conversations now take place on the phone, or via inevitably glitchy video calls. Does this make listening more difficult, and at what cost? I'm going to ask you a simple question. Tell me about your best boss and why you like working for them. <laughs> um, the best boss uh, uh, knows exactly what needs doing and when and doesn't interfere too much. OK, so already you've told me just in that one line. So you like people that are more or either clever than you, but certainly as knowledgeable as you. And you like people to let you get on with your own work and you don't want people interrupting all your time and interfering with you all the time. So you're quite independent and you like responsibility. You got it in one. I think we'd better stop there before I really embarrass myself in front of my bosses. I didn't think I'd given so much away. Most people don't listen so closely to what could be a throwaway comment. But then the person I'm talking to is not your average listener. Well, my name is Richard Mullender. I spent... 30 years as a police officer working out of Scotland Yard, mainly as a detective. And then the last five years I spent as a hostage negotiator and I became the lead trainer for hostage negotiation within the Met. After leaving the force, Richard started the Listening Institute to try to apply lessons from the world of hostage negotiation to help people, particularly in the world of business, to learn to listen better. I was the lead trainer and I went out on the negotiation with two of the people I'd trained and they kept missing the point. They kept missing the clues and, and we got the person off safely. But there were so many clues they missed. So I went away and I listened to the recordings that we make because we always record any incident that we go to purely because if, it, if, something, if, if something disastrous happens, then the coroner's got every right to listen to our recordings to see whether we've done anything wrong. And I picked out the words I thought were important. And what I realised was I'd never taught them to listen for those words. Listening is about words and about size and noises. People tell you that listening is about looking, so you've got to get eye contact. People tell you about body language. It's looking. It's not listening. You know, I always say to people, if you don't believe me, if you think body language is that important, then turn off your video. And you can't see me, but we can have a perfectly good conversation. It's still quite a leap, isn't it? From dealing with extreme situations like kidnappings and even suicide preventions to talking to business executives about how to listen in their businesses. How do you make the connection? Well, there's nothing in life that doesn't need listening. Nothing. You, you have to listen. Um, if you're in business, you need to know about your client. You need to understand them. You need to understand their values. You need to understand what they believe in. You need to understand what they, where they see the benefit. You need to understand uh, why they feel this way. You need to understand what their motives are. You've got to understand the facts. You'll only ever do that by listening to them. You'll never do that by talking at them. Are your business clients more interested in 
internal communication, as it were, how to talk to their staff, how to talk to colleagues, or in external communication, how to win contracts, how to pacify angry customers? Uh, Both, Uh, all of them. And there's one question that every single person is asking, and you're asking it of me and I'm asking it of you. And that question is, what's in it for me? And you've got to be able to answer that question because they're thinking exactly the same thing. And if I can work out what they're thinking and listen to them carefully, they'll tell me where they see the value. And the moment I understand where they see the value, I can sell my idea, my solution, my gadget or whatever to them in the way that they want to hear it. Too many people sell to themselves. They don't sell to the other person. In this context, how much do you think business has changed because so much is being done remotely and has been for the past year. I mean, we're, we're talking at the end of a computer line, uh, not face-to-face. How much of a difference does that make? I've always said that I much prefer to negotiate over the telephone anyway. I think that's the easiest thing for me because I'm not distracted by the people in front of me. I think the big problem with the pandemic is that we end up in eyeball situations. Have you noticed that we can't look away from each other because we sat opposite each other? So we end up kind of eyeballing and, and People need to look away to find their information. And when you look away, it's almost like, you you know, we're taught that if we look away, we're lying. And we're not lying at all, but it's, it's, we just need to look for information. So that's where I find the Zoom is uncomfortable, shall we say. Also, it removes a lot of the kind of casual contact that you would have as a matter of course in a physical office. Yeah. And it's, it's, you're, you're almost into business almost immediately. Yeah, exactly. The water cooler discussions, all of that goes, you know, and the learning by osmosis goes. I mean, have you got any specific tips you could give any business owner or manager listening that they could they could introduce into their working practices straight away? I would always say work in twos. If you can, work in a pair. And the second person's not allowed to talk. And so that person can do all the listening. They're not there to ask questions. They're not there to come in at the end or anything like that. Because the moment you give them permission to do that, they sit there, they think of a really good question. And then they spend the rest of the interview listening and thinking to themselves, I must remember that question. I must remember that question rather than listening to what's being said. And then at the end of the interview, now I'm sure the two of you will start talking to each other, a little chat and think that was interesting. Maybe we're going to work it. Maybe we're not going to use it. Blah, 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 blah. All of that stuff. Yes. Let's make it very clear to our listeners that it's the silently listening producers doing all the hard work. And Richard Moander, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Tell all your friends and colleagues, and please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The attentively listening producers have been Abisoye Ocean Dairo and Amika Shortino Nolan. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.